Welcome to the VO2 Lounge podcast. Today, we'll be looking at how to get lean and stay lean forever. I know, terrible title, but it is what it is. If you clicked on this podcast episode, it's most likely because you have a goal this year of losing some body weight, particularly losing some fat mass. Now, you may already be a relatively lean individual trying to get very lean. Let's say you're trying to get sub 10% or because you are overweight in say 30, 35% and would like to get to a healthier range or anywhere kind of in between. Maybe you're 20% trying to get to 15, so on and so on. Now, by the end of this episode, you will uh, understand the process of weight loss and the concept of energy in, energy out, why so many people struggle to keep the weight off and why they often rebound and go over their previous weight set point, the pillars um, of total energy expenditure and how their contribution is weighted between each other, uh, the role of non-exercise activity thermogenesis or NEAT and what it plays in energy expenditure and weight loss on the whole, um, how energy expenditure changes with weight loss and why there needs to be some level of adaption to things, and tools for keeping the weight off and finally a look at some useful supplements because you know Everyone loves a supplement. The biggest takeaway from this episode that you're going to have is not what magic foods there are for weight loss or how much exercise you should do to improve your fat burning capacity or what biomarkers should you be looking at to understand where you are in your energy balance and how primed you are for losing weight but how hard and infrequent it is for people to go on a diet come off that diet and also keep the weight off at the same time. Uh, a study titled The Biggest Loser Thinks Long Term uh, Recency as a Predictor of Success in Weight Management really does highlight this fact but also the parameter which best predict long-term weight loss. So in their end discussion they highlighted that Weight loss in a weight management intervention is predicted by a recency parameter of the expectancy valence model, or EV. Now, su successful dieters, according to the study, tend to consider long-term information in their decision-making, while unsuccessful dieters rely more heavily on recent outcomes. Now, the recency parameter was identified as only variable that will distinguish between successful and unsuccessful dieters. The study really just suggests that the ability to think long term contributes to significantly uh, to behavioral change in weight management. Now successful dieters, it argues, are better uh, able to engage the difficult and effortless process of considering potential time distant outcomes of their actions uh, leading to a successful habit change and weight loss so essentially rather than thinking it's like deferred and immediate kind of gratification in the sense you place more emphasis on the long-term vision of where you're trying to get to and that doesn't mean every time you see a chocolate bar you don't have it but the thing i usually refer to this more is like say at work someone brings in chocolates Maybe it's more frequent depending on the workplace you're at. But when I'm in a period of time where either I'm conscious I've gained a little bit or I'm just trying to come down a little bit more or whatever the reason may be, 
is you can still have those kind of things but rather than being like oh i would love to have like 10 of these little chocolates you're like oh you know what one or two is so nominal in the long term but also pleasing you in the short term to some extent but you're having that vision that yeah i'd love to have 10 and or a donut or whatever it is and just pushing it down the road and knowing that the long-term goal is more value to you than the uh, current period of having that treat. Now, the neuropsychological uh, level is discussed, um, no, noting that individual differences in recovery correspond to differences in activation of the uh, prefrontal cortex, a brain area linked to uh, an inhibitory control. The study suggest that high activation in the prefrontal cortex precedes weight management success, emphasizing the importance of a reflective system in decision-making process. The study draws connections between the two systems, uh, model of decision-making, impulsive uh, slash motivational systems and reflective systems, and, and components of the EV model, now, sensitivity to reward and recency. It highlights that these components serve as a behavioral measures of activation in different neurophysiological systems. Uh, the, the text acknowledges potential limitations, including the modest sample size, the lack of control for eating disorders, and the need for further play, uh, replication of findings, and also mentions the challenge of addressing gender differences in obesity studies and decision-making patterns. But to wrap it up and kind of the conclusion from this study, really, <clears throat> the study process uh, proposes that the cognitive decision-making property of uh, recency can predict success in behavioral obesity treatments. Um, the findings suggest that understanding individual cognitive factors, such as the ability to incorporate long-term uh, considerations into decision-making, can help healthcare professionals identify patients who are more likely to benefit from behavioral treatment. And then the text emphasizes the importance of moving beyond a one-size-fits-all approach in weight management, research, and practice, suggesting that uh, tailored in interventions based on cognitive factors could improve treatments outcomes. Now, this gives us a good starting point for weight loss methods and how really we need to think long term about these things and it to me highlights a major part of my own methodology around weight loss and gain so whether uh, lean mass gaining lean mass and losing weight overall and for me these things in isolation can be a challenge to some extent if I just woke up one day and I was like I'm gonna get I'm going to put on loads of muscle. I'm going to dedicate myself for the next two, three, four, five years to putting on 10 kilos, 15, 20 kilos of lean mass. Or the other way around of just say, I, you know, I want to be 78 kilos when I'm currently, say, 85. Those goals on their own to me have always been very challenging because there just doesn't seem to be a reason for it. Yeah, you can have the long-term vision of, you know, maybe it affects your health, but particularly for people who are in the kind of 20 to 25% range, really, it's like you're perfectly fine. There's nothing really to worry about. Maybe you just want to be leaner because you feel like you look better or so on and so forth. 
But when you then have goals that are linked to an activity, so for example, the easiest I've ever found it to lose weight was simply when I was cycling and the sport is driven so heavily by power to weight ratio and so it just it was a byproduct of doing the sport and the easiest I've ever found it to put on mass was playing rugby where it's a byproduct of the sport you just need to be able to take impacts you need to be able to put impacts lift people do strenuous activity that involves moving mass and as a result you put it on without really having to obviously there's a commitment to the process and eating and and going to the gym but when you're doing it and you've got a bad day and when you say for example you're in this moment of losing weight if it's connected to some form of activity that really I think helps turn it into a long-term goal but that's not great and doesn't help people who don't want to attach it to a sport but maybe um, as we go further through this episode something will help with that now i do apologize for the uh tangent but let's move on to getting on to the basics of this topic and what uh what is weight loss made up of like what are the components how does it happen so on and so forth which may seem pretty obvious in the sense that you know, are you just losing weight but let's go into a bit more so i think it is important to break down weight loss uh somewhat firstly i would say there are two kinds of weight loss in in this world or at least two kinds of people looking to achieve weight loss these people are people who can afford to lose some lean mass and those who can't really if you are significantly overnourished and overweight then you can likely afford to lose some lean mass at the same time as losing fat mass say you're like 30 I don't know what really is a reasonable range but 35% like you're maybe uh, 6 foot or 185 centimeters or whatever that it equates to and you're 115 kilos then you're in that category where you don't really as much need to think about the lean mass retention simply because of how much mass there is and the huge surplus of um the energy huge energy reserves meaning that there can be muscle uh saving characteristics of simply that process and on the other hand if you're someone who's already more moderately lean and either targeting more of a body recomposition or simply do not have much lean mass on you then you'll be wanting to reserve as much of this as possible so that mainly there kind of affects the dieting approach on one hand it's just caloric restriction just get it done on the other hand there also has to be some element of protein management where you are trying to encourage the lean mass to stick around by by doing two things really one is resistance training and the other is protein consumption so that's the two kind of camps but the calories in and calories out is essentially how all of this works and some people say this is not true or various reasons including it didn't work for me or that's too simple uh, well as you're about to hear it is really is quite far from simple and there are reasons that you may have counted calories 
and either stayed at maintenance or should I say maintained weight or gained weight or whatever combination of something happening so the calories consumed obviously comes from what we eat but the calories you use or burn can come in various different forms now this can include uh, resting energy expenditure which is as it says an energy you use just existing exercise activity thermogenesis which is energy expenditure from exercising uh, um, non-exercise activity thermogenesis or NEAT as you will probably know it which is energy used by moving around fidgeting and, and the likes and then there is the thermic effect of food which is just the almost the waste uh, energy expenditure to consume not to consume but to process that food now okay so for these in far more detail so starting with um, a, ca a calorie really because it's important to know is simply a unit of energy it's not some food tied item you will get a calorific value of a f of a of a a liquid in, in not in relation to how much if you ate it you would consume it's just simply a unit of energy so it can be refer to how much to change a fluid or materials temperature by x number of degrees or so on um, and we are trying to consume these units of energy to convert them into our own internal form of energy which is ATP or adenosine triphosphate and is the as people will always refer to it as the energy currency of our uh, cells so it's simply how we get about it's not that we eat calories and that calorie itself is the thing that is like goes into the muscle no there's various things going on to depending on what you're consuming whether it's a carbohydrate a fat protein which affects many things as we'll go into but it, it affects its likelihood of ending up as different things and so on and so forth now where do we find these calories to count them in the first place for the whole energy in energy out model well obviously we all know that uh, that's from food labels on all the foods we buy that we can scan or we can manually type into our uh, fitness tracker app what you may not know is that these food labels can be very inaccurate and it can be up to 20% either side so to keep things simple um, something labeled as 100 calories could be 80 or 120 or anywhere in between and something that's 200 could be 240 or 160 and again anywhere in between so once we are up to a typical number of say like 2000 calories to just cherry pick a, goal, a, a typical number uh, a day you could be eating anywhere from 2400 to 1600 depending on how the areas of your food to stack up so you can see how now this becomes a bit of a mess now reportedly uh, now i think these inaccuracies come from one just not necessarily quality control but just when these golden numbers were drummed up uh, how maybe say for example like chicken the quality of the meat could have changed it could be there it could be worse this this sauce could have a higher quality meat the individual blends of like yogurt or whatever can be different it means that it's a big band 
it's going to give you an idea but um there it was meant to be apparently somewhat consistent in the sense that you're not going to get the same brand of yogurt the same greek yogurt and one pot has 200 the next is 240 the next is 230 apparently it should be consistently outside of whatever it stated whether it is exactly what it stated or something else which means if you're doing calories in calories out you use them as a baseline but you use the scale as your indicator effectively really you can use that tracker is what it's really good for to some extent is going okay i'm gonna have this food that i really like has this many calories what sort how much stuff should i chop off to stay maintenance or stay in my calorie deficit or roughly what foods could i have on my refuel days and not drastically sort of go over on my um my diet now even with this there's the added complexity of um we need to consider that in some cases like with insoluble fiber like in plants and the actual metabolizable energy within that very calorie count may again be lower than the amount you think you are consuming so now you're completely disheartened or confused with the energy inside of the uh, equation let's look at the energy out well, as I said, you have uh, a resting energy expenditure or resting metabolic rate, which accounts for 50 to 70% of your daily expenditure. So the vast majority, even at the lower end, it's still pretty high. Now, the variation is mainly due to activity level. So someone who is more active will be close to the 50% and someone who's more sedentary, close to the 70% value, simply because the person active is spending more of their waking time moving so naturally there's only so much time then left to be sedentary and that contribute to your overall energy expenditure so the thermic effect of food accounts for five to ten percent of your daily expenditure this is simply the energy needed to extract energy from those calories consumed uh, almost a bit like the efficiency of something meaning that again uh, to gain energy there will be some energy lost this is where the concept of not all calories being created equally kind of is born from but that i can think can be sort of misinterpreted to some extent um, it's not saying that the calorie measured in fat is somehow different to a calorie measured in protein um, because it's just a unit of measurement it'd be like saying a kilogram weighed in england is different to a kilogram weighed in the usa or an the age-old kind of um uh what is heavier a kilogram of rocks or a kilogram of feathers uh, it's neither obviously because they're both a kilogram because they're both being used by an si unit so simply they're the same thing well, what is true sort of net uh, caloric gain from different macronutrients fat be could be considered roughly 97 percent efficient as it's the easier macro to turn into energy 
and so 100 calories of fat consumed equates to about 97 actually turned into energy carbohydrates are 90 to 95 percent efficient and then protein would be 70 80 percent efficient and that's um that's where sometimes people are saying you can't get fat on protein um which obviously isn't true really i mean yes the thermic effect is greater the satiety can be higher yes it's unlikely that the protein you consume is they're going to end up in adipose tissue but if you were consuming say you had a maintenance of 2500 and then you decided to eat and you were eating 2500 calories and then you ate an additional 500 calories of protein or meat and yeah some of it maybe fat and so on but that would then insinuate that oh it would all be muscle but no it just the 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 protein could can act as a cushion to some extent for weight gain anyway in fat because you've now got these this protein available to do other tasks so yes a lot of it can end up in muscle protein synthesis but it's not just you're still gonna have to provoke something to get you know get it out but anyway now moving on to the physical activity we have two forms deliberate activity like running cycling walking going to the gym so on and so forth Uh, essentially anything that isn't like you getting up to go to the kitchen or getting up to go make it a cup of tea or whatever and then we have neat which is non-deliberate with um with which is things like fidgeting maybe walk more often around the house um using your hands when you talk so on and so on really it's it's actually a very potent factor in people who are or fat or weight gain resistant um and it's going to be the next thing we talk about so how neat affects weight loss let's take a let's take this study for example the role of non-exercise activity thermogenesis in resistance to fat gain in humans which is a 1999 study again a bit like my last episode on uh how much uh muscle can be gained with and without steroids there's a lot of these good studies that are from back in the day um i don't know whether it's there's not much in the financial incentive or whatever or these studies were just good enough for the general community to put them to bed but a lot of these seem to be a little bit older now this study investigates the physiological basis of in uh, inter-individual variation in uh, susceptibility to weight gain in response to overeating now the researchers fed 16 non-obese volunteers 1000 calories per day in excess of weight maintenance requirements for eight weeks and measured changes in energy storage and expenditure the key findings from this were uh, two-thirds of the increases in total daily energy expenditure were attributed to increases in non-exercise activity thermogenesis and neat includes activities like fidgeting uh, maintaining posture and other physical activities of daily life as i've already kind of mentioned Um, the changes in neat were found to account for tenfold differences in fat storage observed among participants 
Now, this applies that NEAT plays a crucial role in regulating fat storage in response to overeating. Why it's there, uh, I have no idea. Um, I personally know, and to be honest, I hadn't really ever thought about it, but I mean, I'm not like a naturally incredibly lean person, but moderately so, just like within a reasonable range. But my need in response to overconsumption is somewhat ridiculous. In I had sometimes attributed, even if I'm say, because my mood is so heavily attached to how overnourished I am, like if I'm towing the line a little bit or in a little bit of a deficit, just very unanimated, struggle to engage a little bit. If I go into a surplus, really animated, engaging a lot, making the conversation myself, I'm my hands start moving, particularly, for example, sugary drinks and like alcohol, for example, can have one drink and suddenly like I use my hands a lot more to speak and so on and so forth. And it's just, yeah, just very heavily that way inclined. Whereas obviously there are people the other way who clearly bear it storing fat and don't have this neat effect. Um, now, NEAT changes directly predicted resistance to fat gain with overfeeding. There was a strong positive correlation um, a correlation coefficient of 0.77 between NEAT act, uh, activation and resistance to fat gain, indicating that the individuals who exhibited higher levels of NEAT were more resistant to gaining fat. Uh, as I've said before, the co- correlation coefficient of 0.77, you can think of it as 77%. Or a gradient where you've got one, which is that like 45 degree, let's say, um, line. And then 0.77, it's just like slightly down from it. And so it's how close you are to that overlay of the two values. Um, the results suggest that humans over eat the activation of the neat um, process helps dissipate excess energy, contributing to the preservation of leanness. Failure to activate NEAT may lead to the increase in susceptibility to fat gain. And obviously, to some extent, if you continuously ate this much, then yeah, no amount of NEAT's going to save you here. But it's more, some people could gradually over years put on weight because they're 200 calories over here 200 there 300 here 400 there and then these people with high neat maybe can rein that in because their body's able to like cope with a slightly larger surplus and still maintain mass but to really like summarize the study they highlights the importance of non-exercise activity thermogenesis in regulating energy expenditure and fat storage in response to overeating the findings suggest that individuals who activate neat effectively are more resistant to gaining fat emphasizing the role of neat in preserving um, leanness during periods of overfeeding now don't get this idea that you can now start eating what you want and just increase your neat this is something that is involuntary or subconsciously managed and I mean humans can be not a multitasking organism simply switch between something quickly to another just I mean the number of times I've been at work and maybe sometimes it is a slow day you're not really feeling it you're like plodding away at a report or something and you put some music in and you think you're still working but 
you can clearly see yourself doing two minutes on, minute off, two minutes on, two, a minute off, and you're just lost in what's going on. Um, and really, you just need some kind of blank noise in the background that you don't actually focus on. It actually just cuts out everything else and helps you focus. And this is an example of, really, if you try to think about doing this neat, it's not really the same thing. And then, arguably, it becomes non-voluntary and it's no longer neat. Um, yeah. I'd like to now take a moment to acknowledge the sponsor of this episode, the share button. The share button allows you to share content like this podcast and many other bits of information with all your friends in just a few simple taps. Studies show that 90% of podcast growth come from a combination of clicking the share button and word of mouth alone. Only joking, I don't actually have any studies that prove this. But I dare you to make a group with 10 of your closest friends or closest like-minding friends in relation to this podcast episode and share it with them in that group chat. I dare you. Thank you and back to the episode. Now for part three, the rebound. Keeping on the topic of how we rebound to diets, let's take a look at 2011 paper titled Biology's Response to Dieting the impetus for weight regain. Now this paper discusses the challenges of weight loss and the high uh, incidence of weight regain, particularly in the context of dieting. Now the review emphasizes the limited success of dieting as a long-term weight reduction strategy and highlights the biological factors that contribute to the problem of weight regain. I think even without going any further, If you're calling something a diet, it insinuates that there is then going to be a return to some kind of normality which involves basically returning to where you were before. So it it has to bring it back to the long-term prospect concept. There has to be some form of permanent change or adaption in the way you go about eating food. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't eat any rubbish it just means if you eat four pieces of rubbish a day or like you have pizza six times a week for example like a domino's pizza six times a week that there's low hanging fruit there in just eating regular meals five times a week and then maybe having a piece here piece there of other kind of things now for some people it's one let's just stick into the language people tend to use one cheat item of day it could be a pack of popcorn it could be like a small chocolate bar like a single serve chocolate bar it could be i don't know whatever people's guilty pleasures are it could be that every day or maybe you're someone who needs to build it up and have a more indulgent experience now these can still be for the most part still legitimate food like say for example a homemade burger you've still got possibly high quality meat there's protein it's nutritionally complete you've got carbohydrates you've got fats you've got protein you've got some vegetables and so on and so forth but maybe just the caloric the head count for it is too high to be having on a regular basis so you stack it up onto say the weekend and maybe that's the days when you go back onto maintenance let's say you've got five days of restriction one day at maintenance two days at maintenance maybe that's the day you use that it's an additional 
400 calories that brings you back up to maintenance and you've enjoyed that meal and there you go there are so many ways to go about this it's just you need to figure out something permanent so while dieting can lead to short-term weight loss which everyone knows about it's noted to have a relatively poor success rate for long-term weight reduction most obese individuals who lose weight through dieting eventually regain weight um and the prevalence of of overweight and obesity is uh, like is a big public health concern, particularly in the U.S., affecting over sixty percent of adults, close to twenty percent of children. A huge amount. I mean, the fact that twenty percent of children. I mean, you haven't been on this earth long enough to become obese yet. Still, I suppose overweight is thrown in there, but still, he is kind of crazy. Like six in ten people um that you see will be overweight or obese in the u.s the united states of america particularly i think it's kind of crazy um now effective weight loss strategies are often only uh transiently effective over a period of three to six months Less than 20% of individuals who attempt to lose weight are able to maintain a 10% reduction over a year. Um, the high incidence of weight regain, now over one-third of lost weight tra- uh, tends to return within the first year and the majority is regained within three to five years. This high incidence of weight regain is considered a major obstacle for uh, obesity therape- uh, therapeutics. So this, I think the reason that's such a long-term win a lot of people maybe listen to this have just had like a diet where they go from 90 to 85 or whatever your kind of reduction has been and then you can put it all back on in six months to a year obviously this this long term three to five years you these must be significantly overweight people for it to sort of take that long i suppose you could still creep back up but it seems more like logical um now the review aimed to examine the role of biological response uh, in the process of weight regain and it suggests that biological adaptions to weight loss involve uh, comprehensive, uh, persistent and redundant mechanisms in energy homeostasis. Uh, now, the discussion also acknowledges that there are unique features of the uh, adaptive response to weight loss in overweight or obese people and understanding these adaptions is uh, pertinent to therapeutic development. Um, now, the differences in weight recovery, uh, they mention that uh, the central and peripheral adaptions involved in weight recovery can differ based on one and starting weight, and these differences may provide insight into the effective targeting homeostatic system in individuals who uh, have difficulty controlling their weight. Now, challenges obviously uh, countering the uh, metabolic drive to regain lost weight is identified in the significant challenge for obesity therapeutics um and it, it's just gonna get hard. it's harder it really suggests but the key takeaways really from it are um they emphasize the act of dieting and uh, deviating from the established steady state weight acts as a trigger awakening the body's kind of defense mechanism to return to where it once was Um, now the ensuing biological response is characterized by the persistence 
redundancies and the clear focus on restoring the body's depleted energy reserves. Um, now, critical role of acknowledgement and planning. So, weight loss strategies that fail to acknowledge the p and plan uh, for this emerging metabolic influence are likely to achieve limited success and facilitating long-term weight reduction. Um, now, they they also count. Uh, so, contrary to a resigned acceptance of weight regain inevitability the review highlights that the biological drive to regain lost weight can effectively be countered uh, the counteractive measures involve environmental behavioral um, pharmaca um, pharmacological interventions um, now the influence of diet uh, composition and physical activity they also address and the com uh, the composition of the weight maintenance diet specifically featuring high protein and low carbohydrate content significantly influences various aspects of the homeostatic response and then physical activity and regular program exercise play pivotal roles in shaping this response it, it, really that that's also a lot of that is about obviously protein and fat particularly not having really uh, glucose spiking effects mean that especially when you're going through this process keeping your uh, blood sugar curve as kind of flat as possible so that you don't have these cravings and hunger spikes and over satiation followed by a massive drop in how satiated you are can help drastically this then use of physical activity especially like um low intensity cardiovascular work can help dispose of even if it's something like a walk that's like 40 minutes long can help dispose of glucose around meals and also help flatten the curve more um and help manage things um and yeah trying to do a high carb diet of losing weight can be a bit challenging just because the glucose spikes are going to be all over the place really depending on how overweight you are already you could be incredibly insulin resistant and uh, it just becomes even more of a mess really so um, now they also have some proactive regain prevention strategies by acknowledging the emergence of these homeostatic pressures the the review advocates pro proactive development and implementation of comprehensive strategies to prevent weight, weight regain and um, ensure success these regain prevention strategies are proposed to mirror the characteristics of biological adaptions they aim to counter um, by being comprehensive persistent and redundant um, but the review really concludes that underscoring the significance of understanding and addressing the biological underpinnings of weight regain by adopting a proactive and comprehensive approach clinicians and researchers can develop interventions that effectively counteract the intricate uh, persistent biological pressures ultimately improving long-term weight management outcomes essentially the most part the takeaway from it is that a lot of the world is overweight at least in the western developed world but also that the weight regain is going to be inevitable unless you identify it acknowledge it and 
put in place methods at which you are going to prevent it and that I think the biggest method of preventing it is by not going on a diet in the first place actually just changing your existing diet in the sense of what you eat how you eat and when you eat on a regular basis but keeping in the things you like because it could be for some people they eat poorly out of how maybe being lazy to some extent or having long work days or whatever it may be so making it sticking to the convenient stuff but rather than for example being very crude rather than having a takeaway or multiple ready meals or a ready meal that isn't very satiating followed by a couple of chocolate bars to satisfy your desires even though it's more costly and maybe arguably to some real purist not healthy but like a microwaved rice packet with some kind of like um, pre-steamed vegetables and then some pre-cooked chicken like it you can still keep the uh, ease of the meal preparation it can be eating together more say you have a partner and cooking meals together and taking them uh, altering it could even be especially in the UK where we can do online shopping and food delivered to our home moving from a in-store based shopping process of going to the shops buying stuff going one step further than the arriving to the shops full right so you don't buy the Kit Kats or whatever because trust me if I go to the shops full it doesn't matter I see shiny stuff that looks like it tastes good I'm gonna buy it instead of that it's just not going in there in the first place getting it all delivered to your house that way it's even more awkward to find the bad food online and then my way of just deleting kind of what I want is like if I go for a walk at lunch with people for like 40 minutes and I go to a shops and I fancy something I'll walk in and I'll buy something that I fancy but if I had gone to shops and bought eight things that I fancy so I can have something like that every day then it's a completely different situation so it's finding these I don't like the word necessarily a hack or a dieting hack but it's finding these little things of pushing things out of the way and getting them out of reach and making it so it is harder for you to consume habitually or overconsume habitually and then making poorer long-term decisions. Now there is another factor we need to consider and that is how our energy expenditure changes during our weight loss and weight gain process. A paper titled Changes in Energy Expenditure with Weight Gain and Weight Loss in Humans gives us some idea on this very topic. I'd actually recommend pulling up this paper as there's a really good figure in the final part of the paper that explains everything I'm about to summarise. But for those just looking to listen and not looking to see, see the paper, here we go. Now the paper outlines uh, the differentiation of adaptive thermogenesis, AT, in the context of resting and non-resting energy expenditure, and various phases of weight loss and weight loss maintenance. Now here's a breakdown. So differentiation based on uh, components of total energy expenditure or TEE. So resting versus non-resting energy expenditure. The first issue involves differentiating um, AT in relation 
to uh, the individual components of TEE, uh, considering both resting and non-resting energy expenditure. So, uh, differential emission based on phase of weight loss. So you have three phases. So they overview the process uh, as such, which is phase one in immediate control. Which uh, phase two, which is proportional changes, changes in uh, energy expenditure are proportional to weight change. And phase three, weight maintenance, the regulatory system impacting weight maintenance after weight reduction. Um, now, phase one, the mitochondrial carbon load decreases. ATP demand is met by mobilizing endogenous sources such as glycogen and triglycerides, um, so sugar and fat. Uh, losses in functional body mass and AT contribute to reducing ATP demand, uh, characterized by depletion of glycogen stores. Then weight maintenance, AT is triggered by a loss of body fat. Uh, leptin fat mass association serves as a second set point to keep energy expenditure uh, low and prevents triglyceride stores from getting too low, safeguarding basic biological functions like reproduction. Um... Now, the discussion involves set point uh, feedback system designed to match a target and settling points control system without a set point uh, in body regulation. Two set points with a settling between them. Now, so first set point decreases in glycogen stores uh, triggers AT. And the second set point, leptin fat mass association during weight maintenance preventing triglyceride stores from getting too low. Uh, settling occurs between these two uh, set points. Um, now, lower thresholds of liver glycogen or negative fluid balance associated with glycogen depletion trigger AT in early starvation, possibly related to the energy needs of the brain because obviously glucose powerhouse, it needs glucose. It doesn't want anything else. It just wants bloody glucose. Um, now, AT does not occur after glycogen depletion in response to uh, an isocaloric ketogenic diet and moderate weight loss um, so possibly due to increased plasma ketones providing an alternative fuel to the brain um, now during weight maintenance a lower margin of the leptin fat mass association serves as a second set point this keeps energy expenditure low to prevent triglyceride stores from getting too low preserving the basic biological functions such as reproduction. Um, so that's essentially how all this uh, energy expenditure changes. You can you can imagine, essentially, that it, your energy expenditure is going to go down as you lose weight because you are physically a smaller human. That's what I was talking about, the ATP demands going down as you lose weight because there's less biologically active tissue there um but there's ways to mitigate it with activity but to some extent it's like you're just a lighter smaller human being so you just need less food there can be a bit of metabolism tanking a little not tanking but dropping a little bit and then as you come up back to maintenance it can raise and all plateau and settle a little bit more um but just be wary during that maintenance phase. Maybe there's a little bit of fettling, fine tuning, but you can just jump straight up to it and then just see what happens. It's not like you're going to wake up the next day three kilos heavier. So you, this is where weighing 
um, yourself, which we will come to in a second, is very critical in maintaining weight loss. At this point, I do recognise that it's been a little convoluted and we haven't exactly overtly spoken about how it is you lose weight. Well, that's really because it was addressed right at the beginning to some extent by saying that you need to be in a caloric deficit. How much? Well, probably something on or below 20% of your maintenance uh, value, which you can figure out with some trial and error. There are calculators online. You can mess around with that, see if that works out. It could provide you a rough estimate, but, you know, you can figure this out. Or you could track weight, seeing as this is the end goal after all. Uh, a study titled Consistent Self-Monitoring of Weight, a Key Component of Successful Weight Loss Maintenance from 2012 gives evidence for regular weighing as being an adequate tool for successful weight loss and management. And honestly, even without weighing, like reading this paper before that point, that has been one of my key metrics. I have a, like, a, I think it's a Xiaomi smart scale or something. You can buy really cheap smart scales now that self zeroing, uh, called body fat or whatever. But all I care about is the weight. And every single day you can step on there, it sends the information to your phone. You have a log of what you weigh over the course of a week. Do it at the same time every day. Wake up, go to the toilet, come back, weigh yourself. Or if it's in the bathroom, you go to the bathroom, weigh yourself. After going to the toilet. And then you just have a really obvious metric for knowing when you're losing weight, when you're gaining weight. And it's simple. It's just easy. You go, okay, I'm trending upwards or I'm maintenance. I haven't changed for two, three, four weeks. Like, I want to lose weight now. So you look at your diet. If it's fairly consistent and you can go, oh, okay, the easiest thing to do is take some calories out of that breakfast or that lunch or that dinner or remove that snack or change that snack for a lower calorie snack and be on your way and then you have a uh, readily available consistent repeatable and daily method of knowing what's going on in your body now back to this study the objective this study aimed to investigate the characteristics associated with frequent self-weighing and exploring the relationship between self-weighing frequency sustained and sustained weight loss among individuals enrolled in national weight control registry now the research methods um, were participants in the study um, numbered 3003 and were members of the nwcr uh, which was that national weight control registry um, to be included individuals had to achieve a weight loss of at least 30 pounds maintaining that weight loss for a minimum of one year and complete the baseline self-weighing frequency assessment upon joining the NWCR. A follow-up assessment was uh, conducted one year later with 82% of the participants completing um, said study. Now the results were, at baseline, 36.2% of the participants reported daily self-weighing. Those with a higher self-weighing frequency exhibited lower BMI, higher uh, uh, disinhibition sources and increased cognitive res, uh, restraint scores. 
all within normal ranges. Now, participants who decreased their self-weighing frequency experienced greater weight gain, um, talking in the order of six and a half kilos, compared to those with an increased frequency, um, sorry, approximately four, whereas with an increased frequency, it was only about one. Now, um, and then the people with an unchanged frequency, 1.8. Had the uh, then this is at the one year follow up point, changes in self weighing frequency were associated with alterations in other parameters of weight control, with those decreasing their frequency more likely to report increased caloric intake from fat, higher disinhibition, and decreased cognitive uh, restraint. Importantly, the change in self weighing frequency was uh, independently associated with weight change. Um, now the Consistent self-weighing emerged as a potential valuable tool for successful weight maintenance, allowing for individuals to detect weight gain early and make timely adjustments to prevent further increases. And notably, a decrease in self-weighing frequency was independently associated with greater weight gain. This underscores the significance of regular self-monitoring and particularly through consistent self-weighing. Um, in facilitating vigilant weight management and supporting long-term weight loss maintenance. And it's just kind of obvious to some extent. I mean, imagine it's like looking in the mirror, isn't it, really? It's easy to put on, I don't know, let's use a number they used of 30 pounds um, over the course of two years when you never weigh yourself, whereas... When every day you step on the scale and you see the natural fluctuations, but then you also see the trend upwards, I think it's pretty easy to then feel like you need to take some kind of action. Uh, even if you kind of yo-yo a little bit, but it's just yo-yo at a, just like a reasonable uh, mass rather than way up in the range. And now onto the internet's favorite topic, and that is supplements for weight loss. It's important to say, th uh, though, that you will still need to be in a caloric deficit. These are just tools that can be used to help make the process that bit easier or more effective, or but they are more high-hanging uh, than low-hanging fruit. Obviously, to some extent, protein should have been included in the li this list, but it's not really weight loss. It's a little more strategic weight loss and trying to target fat loss. But anyway... The 2020 review titled Current Evidence to Propose Different Food Supplements for Weight Loss, a comprehensive review, gives a pretty comprehensive overview of all the possible supplements that do and don't work. If you have some time to kill, then it's worth a read as it could almost be a subject of its own episode. But the purpose, the, the proposed food supplements combination leverages multiple mechanisms of acting to aid weight loss and improve metabolism. Each component plays a specific role based on the current state of the uh, art in nutritional science. And here's an overview of the proposed supplements and combinations. So, green tea. Mechanism of action inhibits uh, pancreatic uh, lipase, uh, amylase and glucosoids in the gastrointestinal tract. Reduces uh, nutritional absorption leading to undigested carbohydrates in the GI tract. Dries the mitro, uh, microbiota to produce short-chain fatty acids, or SCFAs, and inhibits lipogenesis and induces lipo, uh, lipolysis through the AMPK-dependent mechanism. 
PVE. Uh, active ingredient contains uh, phasolin and A-amylase inhibitor. Mechanism of action is impairs the absorption of carbohydrates. Impairs, not stops, impairs. Caffeine uh, suppresses hunger, stimulates energy expenditure, increases uh, excitability and the sympathetic nervous system, um, increases fat oxidation and activates brown adipose tissue, which I have actually discussed about in an episode on uh, hot and cold exposure and cold water therapy and so on and so forth. And if you'd like to know more on brown adipose tissue, go there and you'll understand why it's maybe a little bit nominal in its benefits. Okay. Uh, Caposocanoids? Caposicinoids? I don't know how you pronounce that. Anyway, C-A-P-S-A-I-C-I-N-O-I-D-S. Um, activates the TRPV1 leading to GLP1 release, increases fat oxidation, increases SIRT1 expression, and suppresses uh, ghrelin release, increases uh, adiponectin, PPARA, and the PGC1A expression, regulates glyconeogenesis and uh, glycogen synthesis uh, genes, improves insulin resistance, all the things you would possibly want. Uh, then you also have L-carnitine. Improves insulin resistance. Increases a acetyl uh, uh, coenzyme A and glucose sub, uh, supply to the brain. Increases energy expenditure. Facilitates the transportation of, and of activated long chain fatty acids into mitochondria. Plays a role in B oxidation and uh, modulates uh, beta oxidation sorry and modulates lipid metabolism Uh, resveratrol uh, increases SIRT1 expression decreases the adipogenesis and viability in maturing pre-adipocytes modulates lipid metabolism in mature adipocytes the, the list goes on. You've got uh, lipoic acid, which is increases GLUT4 expression on the cell membrane with the skeletal muscles and adipocyte cells. Leads to an increase in glucose uptake. Improves glucose tolerance. Their list, there is quite that. There's a few things else on that list. I don't think it's worth going through all of them. But essentially, what I will always take away from supplements and their effects on weight loss is that they are that a tool it may be something that can maybe that i honestly think even the the placebo effect can be greater and really if you're at the bleeding edge of weight loss then yeah i'm sure these are probably worth looking into and supplements and so on but for the most part get the diet dialed get yourself in a caloric uh, restriction Exercise is almost something that needs to come after as well. If you're not, if you're like a cyclist, a runner, a footballer, a rugby player, or whatever, you're already exercising, and then you're going on a diet. Fine. If you are sedentary and looking to go on a diet, don't start running and go on the diet at the same time. Pick one, do that first, get that underway, then creep the other one in. So don't do them at the same time. It's just 
not good. I acknowledge that I haven't spoken about different diets and what foods you should be consuming at this point. That's because after a short look at studies on these diets, they all generally have very poor long-term outcomes. So I think it would be unfair to really harp on about any of them. I did do an episode maybe a year ago at this point talking about common weight loss diets. Um, And essentially, yes, a lot of them, when combined with a calorie deficit, result in weight loss. Long-term outcomes for most people are poor. If you're someone who's taken up a ketogenic diet, a vegan diet, a paleo diet, or so on and so forth, and the weight loss has come easy and the diet is sustainable and you're three years down the line, then great. It's not to say that they cannot work for anyone. It's to say that if you really struggle with food, it's an added level of complexity that probably will make things harder. It may not, but it could very well do so. And the uh, literature kind of supports the fact that these tend not to have the most positive outcomes. Um, it's my, I always look at it as, look, you're going to have to restrict stuff and it's finding the form of restricting things that is feels least restrictive to you. At times, that to me has been carbohydrate restriction. But then when I'm racing and riding my bike a lot, carbohydrate restriction feels incredibly painful so it starts to have to come from volume in some cases cutting everything down it can be food types it can be not no longer cooking with certain things like say coconut milk or having a lighter version or uh, removing yogurt from breakfasts for example and so on and so forth um it's also worth touching on protein very briefly. Um, as I said before, depending on how much muscle mass you have, you need to consider how much protein you're consuming to keep the muscle on you. Two grams per kilo is often the gold standard value to consume while losing weight. But if you're only hitting 1.6 grams per kilo, it's not going to be the end of the world. Unless you've got some serious muscle mass on you that really should not be there. That's not in a negative way, but say you are like, incredibly muscular then your body may decide it doesn't need that anymore so you really need to have a strong stimulus which is going to be say for example two grams per kilogram in combination with resistance training don't forget about the resistance training for more content like this explore my previous episodes and consider following rating and sharing the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from Share your thoughts or suggest future topics at the vo2lounge at gmail.com or in the vo2lounge discord server, links all below. Thank you for tuning in and until next time, it is goodbye.